Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo and hello everybody, Mike here, baseball collector. I always say that because I'm just so used to saying that. Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, episode number three. Andy, it's our third episode together. Can you believe it? I can't believe that we've made it to three episodes and we haven't been canceled off of any platform yet, at least to my knowledge. So that's pretty good. You know, I didn't want to break it to you. Uh, We've been already canceled from everything, uh, but uh, like one esoteric you know podcast host so we're just going to keep going though with the four people that are listening to this it'll be great they're going to love it so you how was your week <laughs> oh it's been good man um you know today of course nfl season started um alec mills from the cubs pitched a no hitter today so i was excited about that yeah i, so, I heard that yeah been a pretty exciting exciting weekend so far but I'm, I'm really excited about uh this episode yeah me too so we're shooting this on sunday by the way guys and the cowboys haven't played yet so by the time you hear this the cowboys will have either beaten the los angeles rams in their opener or not and so i'm doing this beforehand so i don't have any emotional swings you know i don't want to be just crazy because the cowboys drive me nuts and I know this is a baseball podcast, but we're all sports fans, I think. And so I just more so than any other sport, the NFL, the Cowboys in particular, get my blood boiling more than anything else. I can't even watch it live. Do you watch sporting events live or do you watch them recorded? Always live. Always, always live. So yeah. I always watch them recorded. And the reason why is it's because and this is probably like blasphemy to hardcore sports fans are like, what are you talking about? but I can fast forward through all the, all the crap and, and I get to miss a lot of commercials. So typically on a Cowboys game, for example, like tonight, they start at seven 30. I will probably piddle around and not turn my phone off and everything till about nine o'clock. And then I will go start watching the game. And by the time I get to the end, when, when the end of the game is I'll be caught up, you know what I mean? And I can skip all the commercials, all the halftime crap and everything, but it, it also allows me if they, I guess this is sounds going to sound so pathetic, but I don't have to get so emotionally invested in it. So that if they play like crap, I don't feel like I just pissed away three hours of my life watching them play like crap. I can say, oh, I only, you know, I caught up and this and that. So maybe that just turns me into a, a complete non-sports fan. But you know, a lot of people would probably say that if you fast forward through all the crap of a Cowboys game, do you actually even watch the game? Oh, now that was <laughs> both a low blow and also probably accurate. Um, They've been known to disappoint. <laughs> you think they've, you know, <laughs> underperformed over the years, but Hey, uh, those five Super Bowls seem like a long, long time ago now. And they were a long, long time ago now. I mean, 25 years since the last Super Bowl here in Dallas. So crazy, but that's okay. We're not here to talk about football. We are here to talk about vintage cards. And I want to get right to our guest today because he's a good friend of both of ours. Um, and it's Dave Berg. Let's just bring Dave on. We'll get Green. him on. Save us, Dave. I am here. Hello, fellas. Hey, Dave. Happy Welcome Sunday. to the show. Happy Thanks. Sunday. Thanks, um, so for everybody that doesn't even know yet, because we haven't said it, what we're going to talk about today, Dave, is buying cards that you hate. And I know that sounds like, what? Who would ever buy a card that they hate? But 
Dave, why don't you talk about why someone might do that real quick? And then I want you to introduce yourself and all that good stuff. Well, I think that I've noticed it on YouTube and in uh, social media and just cruising the internet when you're talking, when you're talking about sports cards, uh, the mantra seems to be buy what you love and uh, don't worry about anybody else. It's all about what makes you feel good. So buy what you love and everything will be okay in the hobby. And uh, I, I don't think that there's anybody that disagrees with that. So I'm, it's kind of like in sports card collecting, it's almost like the may the force be with you. It's like at the end, you have to say that, you know, buy what you love to make yourself feel good and make that other person feel good. But in, in reality, I, none of us, nor any sports card collector I know of or have never known, needs the affirmation from somebody else to buy what you love. So when I started thinking about it and I thought, well, of course I buy what I love. But in reality, some of the stuff that I buy, purchase, I don't love at all. Uh, and I buy it with the same enthusiasm that I buy a new washing machine. It's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of fun buying neat things for the house uh, and maybe that new gator for your farm. But when the washing machine goes out and you sit down $1,200 for that, it's not so fun. And some of these sports cards we buy, we love and we just were in a lather waiting for them to get to the house. But in reality, we buy a lot of cards we don't love for various reasons that I think we'll talk about. And uh, those are the ones that... Uh, are less than exciting yet they are part of most everyone's collection for sure well for those of you out there that don't know dave berg um dave why don't you tell them a little about yourself and how they can find you and all that fun stuff well i am blue jacket 66 that's b-l-u-e-j-a-c-k-e-t-e-t 66 on youtube i've been on youtube for um i'm not sure two and a half years now I was gonna maybe, say three years yeah. maybe three years or so uh and mike was one of the first channels i started subscribing to and i thought maybe i can do it and with the help from you mike i got my channel going and i i really enjoy it but i really entered into this hobby uh luckily and I, I wouldn't i think it's kind of the golden era of of collecting it wasn't in this late 60s early 70s when the first national was when these people uh, were just coming together uh, all across the United States to meet. But I did get in relatively early. And you, to do that, you have to be relatively old, and that's me. But my dad was a collector. He was a coin collector. And as a toddler, I went to all the coin shops with him. Uh, and we did that for years and years and years, every Saturday. And eventually, we got into stamps with the coins. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I would say it was 74 to 75, no later than 75, certainly 74. Four, he started collecting sports memorabilia and baseball cards. And so I got into it very hot and heavy then. It was a thrilling time, in my opinion, because not everybody was collecting. And we would put ads in the paper and head off in Kansas City to people's houses to see what they pulled out of the attic for us to see. So I got started doing that with him. And he was certainly my mentor and heavily influenced how I collected and how I do most things in life. He, I would describe him as a avid 1950s collector, but a type collector uh, who focused on his childhood teams, the Phillies and the uh, Cardinals. So because he was a 50s and 60s collector, that was me along with the uh, really the pre-war vintage of, of Matthewson and Cobb and obviously Ruth and all of those. So I was really introduced at a young age instead of cards of the 70s, I was really introduced to uh, the T206s, uh, T205s, Cracker Jack cards. And like, he was a huge collector. And like everybody was back then, kind of a, a set collector as well. So I was hot and heavy into it. I did have my lull, uh, you know, when you go to college and do all the start a family and all that stuff. So I had a lull uh, until about it was a fairly long lull. I would say until the mid 90s, say from 85 to 95. And then I got back into it uh, where I predominantly collect uh, 50s and 60s cards with a huge emphasis on uh, um, food and beverage cards. Um, 
all those meats cards, all those wieners cards, all those uh, root beer and drink cards and dairy cards and very much into those as those are regional cards. And that's kind of where I, I sit. Big mantle collector, big food and beverage collector from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, your collection is unbelievable. Uh, it's incredibly high quality. And, you know, I consider you a good friend. Andy, tell everybody maybe your first impressions of Dave and when you met him and kind of what that experience was like. So whenever Dave started his channel on YouTube, I was pretty much starting my channel, I think around that same time. And I discovered Dave pretty early on. Like I can remember his early video, like one of the first videos that really caught my eye was when he was showing off his 1933 tattoo orbit set. And, you know, I had looked at those a lot, like over the years. And I just thought, man, there's, there's somebody else out there that, kind of like knows about these on YouTube, you know, because you just don't see that kind of stuff on YouTube. It's mostly, you know, more new stuff, modern stuff. So I was like really excited to find somebody that was showing off that kind of stuff. And then, uh, you know, at the National in Chicago, I got to, you know, meet a lot of people, including Dave and his son, Caden, and just two of the nicest people that I've ever met in this hobby. And I mean, we just, we really hit it off right off the bat. And, you know, Dave's, Dave's a good friend. Like I, I really enjoy obviously, you know, the card stuff, but Dave's just a great guy. So yeah, it, it's been, it's been good to get to know him a little bit. Yeah, I totally agree. I, uh, my first experience with Dave was interesting. I watched his channel and interacted with him a little bit early on in his channel and was like, oh my gosh, this guy's got some just sick stuff. And so I would tell people to go watch him. And then I got this mysterious care package in the mail from some guy named Dave. And I, I don't even know that I knew that his name was Dave yet and or didn't certainly match it up in my head. And I'm opening this package and it's all this stuff, amazing stuff that, I mean, if you want to look at the coolest care package videos on YouTube, just type in care package from blue jacket 66. And he has dropped bombs on so many different guys over the years in terms of just hitting them up with crazy stuff. And he's incredibly generous, uh, shares does great videos and all that and has some knowledge that I hope you guys out there will, learn from tonight, especially if we talk through this topic, but hopefully in future videos, Dave mentioned his expertise in food and beverage, and he may not say he's an expert, but believe me, he's an expert and talking, we may even do a whole episode where we just talk about food and beverage, but going on tonight's topic of buying cards you don't love, you said it earlier, Dave, and it's so true. Sometimes we buy stuff we don't love because of X whatever reason. The first reason I want to throw out to you and Andy that we talk about that we might find ourselves buying cards we don't love for is for that heroin-like addiction known as the PSA set registry. Dave, have you well, done that before? Well, <laughs> I've had a few registry sets. One was that Tattoo Orbit registry set. Uh, I've had a, I, I guess, yes, to answer your question, I, I've had a few, but I generally stay away from it um, uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, and I don't, I know if you look at my channel, I can be salty and I'm kind of the cynical guy, but PSA loves the registry set. I, I think it gets you to, you to grade, if not buy, a lot of cards that you ordinarily wouldn't. Um, because you're trying to build yourself up with the registry. Uh, but overall, I think the registry is a wonderful thing. It gives people collecting goals. It, 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 the same thing that fantasy football does for people watching football. All, all of a sudden, instead of just me watching the Chiefs, I could be watching all these different teams. And the registry can direct your interest to a whole bunch of different areas where you can you can collect. But I think the registry is one of those areas where if you're in a 
certain registry that is not well focused, it can get you into trouble. I mean, I understand registries such as the best 1950 Bowman set. Perfectly understand that. Uh, there's one that's just meets cards that is uh, kind of up my alley. I understand that. But when you get into registry sets that are all-time favorite or top 100 best or best cards of the 80s, you end up, if you're going to participate in that, you're going to end up buying cards that you normally wouldn't buy. And those kind of fall into our category of cards that you don't really love. And there's nothing, we all do it, but uh, I can pick on you, Mike, uh, because you're 300 uh, pains, uh, 300 uh, best Great cards. cards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that That's a stickler with me. And I just cracked up when I saw your video that Mike Payne seems to feel that Eddie Waitkus, <laughs> 1949 Bowman, is one of the 300 best baseball cards of all time. So Eddie Waitkus is certainly an interesting fellow. He's, he's the guy that the natural was based off on. He was a good player for the Cubs. that had a couple of outstanding years, then got shot in 1949. Maybe that's why Mike Payne thinks his card is one of the best and, and certainly came back in 1950, but there is no other reason that I'm aware of. And I own 1949 Bowman's. I'm a 1949 Bowman collector and I have a couple sets. There's no other reason to own Eddie Waitkiss. So uh, both Mike Payne and PSA has got you to buy this card and slab it. And therefore, Mike, do you sleep with that uh, card under your pillow every night? I assume not. I might've looked at it three or four times since I've owned it, to be honest, maybe to put it out for, to do a showcase video or something. All right, Andy, what about you? I'll tell my horror stories around that set. Cause I'm going to use that set as a great example, but Andy, what about you, man? Any, uh, so I am a recovered set registry addict. I've, <laughs> I've been, uh, I've been clean from the registry registry for probably seven or eight years now. So, what really got me into it was this was probably like 10, 11 years ago. I got really into 1933 George C. Miller's and I really wanted to complete that set. So I was and that's a set that you probably, you know, you probably want to buy them graded. Um, and, you know, I found myself much to Dave's point spending four or $500 on guys like Dale Alexander, Oscar Malilo, you know, and people out there are thinking, who are those guys? Right. And that's what I was thinking as well as I'm, you know, working out four or 500 for these guys, but I needed them for the set. And I know right now we're talking just about the registry, but just set belt set building in general kind of, you know, makes you buy some of those cards and pay crazy amounts for, you know, high numbers, all kinds of stuff like that. So I've, I've kind of, uh, I've kind of seen the light as far as the set registry stuff goes. Maybe Mike will get there someday. We'll see. Go ahead and tell your story, Mike. Well, no, it's – I think the sets part is very difficult because when you're building a set like that, there's going to be cards you don't love. And just period. You're just like, I'm only buying this because it's part of this set. Now, you might love the set, right? Let's say you're doing a 60 top set registry. Um, but you're going to have so many cards in there that – you're literally only buying because of the set registry or because you're just trying to complete the set. And so I look, I get it. The 300 great cards is a great example. And Dave has already, you know, busted my chops about it. Rightfully so, by the way, there's a 1975 tops Herb Washington card in that set where the only reason he's in the set is because again, Mike Payne thought that it should be. And, you know, Mike Payne was trying to have, fun with that and just trying to be uh, beyond just the most expensive. Otherwise you'd have every mantle card and every maze and, you know, it'd be relatively boring list. It'd be a lot of overlap. And so I think he tried to bring in some of these quirky, interesting things over the last oops, of the 20th century. So, and it, the 75 tops Herb Washington were, He's literally a pinch runner listed on his card. And that's it's the only time Tops has ever listed pinch runner on someone's card. 
And that's why it's in there. Is it one of the 300 greatest cards of the 20th century? Of course not. And yet all of us who do that set registry are out looking for this guy named Herb Washington, who is a footnote in baseball history. And uh, I don't love that card. I love that it got me further in completing that set, if that makes any sense whatsoever. But, and I pay up for these things. It's so stupid. I'm not, again, I'm admitting my own silliness in regards to this. But that's that's probably my worst. Well, I don't know. We may get into some more bad stories of things. Well, I, bought. I, I understand that with that, that set. That, that set is it's an odd thing for many reasons. I, I look at the, the cards within it, and I, I'm certain, certain that many people that do that registry set, there's a lot of cards that – here's the unfortunate thing. That card is – that set is – not a no one's going to complete it am i correct you can't going to complete well, the that. wagner's in it you can't nope. so you cannot collect you cannot complete the set yet you're being but the the obtainable cards and especially the ones with less value like the you know this this anyway because i think that's probably a uh, what a 30 to 40 dollar card in your mitt so you want to work your way up that registry and you're just forcing yourself to buy cards you're not really enthralled with. And again, that's, it's not a bad thing, but it, it is what it is. And just another example that we all buy some cards that we just don't think are so super duper. Why do you think it's, but this, I want to ask both of you guys this question. Why do we buy, and we'll get into reasons more why do we buy this stuff? Why do we buy stuff we don't love as collectors? Because we're all guilty. I mean, there's no collector out there. If they're really honest with themselves, they would all admit to at some point doing that. Why? Well, I think for a couple reasons. Um, one, the, it may be a card that falls within your collecting niche. And therefore, it would be an important piece within your collecting niche and even though you may not love it uh it, it just feels like that's an important piece sometimes i avoid that i'm a matthewson collector and uh there's several of his that i will i will not buy uh, because i just dislike them so much i have a complete run of mantles but i do not have the 62 and actually the 55 Bowman, we'll just say they're at the, la they're the bottom of my list because I don't like them. I, I don't like the cards, I, but I know I'm going to eventually get them with far, far less satisfaction than I did the others. And I think a lot of people will buy cards. There's uh, whether you're a Phillies collector or a um, whatever, you'll, you'll buy a card within your niche almost just to fill the spot you know, just to, to, che to check it off, even though it's not satisfying. And that's perfectly understandable just for completeness sake, because there's no way that anybody that collects sports cards or baseball cards will never have a complete collection and nor will they ever feel like they've got to, that it's part of this, uh, the illness of being a sports card collector or memorabilia collector is you're never satisfied. So we will move if we're, if we have to move with that outside our niche, we will, and we will buy cards that we did we don't really love if if we need to. So it's just uh, something we do, and it's it will never end. What about another reason? And I think we'll, we'll may have time to get into like three of these. Andy, Andy, do you ever keep up? Try to keep up with the Joneses in terms of your card buying. That was that was going to be what I was going to talk about is like a couple of things that popped into my head whenever you asked that question. The first thing is competitiveness. Like, I think um, a lot of as collectors, I think a lot of us, you know, we see what other people are buying and it's all it's kind of like a combination of competitiveness and then influence. You know, you see something that somebody else has and it kind of makes you want it. Or if you're like, I've even had this happen in the past, you know, like. I'm a Cubs fan, right? So somebody will show me a card and they're like, oh, you're a Cubs fan. Do you need this, right? 
So they kind of like they're kind of, they're kind of convincing you that you need this because you're a fan of that team. So you should have that. Well, maybe I don't want that, but sometimes we end up buying those anyway, just because we feel like we should. If that makes any sense to anyone else. Oh yeah, I think it does. You remember the you know those graphs of circles and uh, all these circles that have a topic within them, and some of them overlap with each other. And let's say you have five circles. It may there may be one point where they all have the same thing in common and they all overlap. I think as sports collectors or sports card collectors, we have our circle, but we're not comfortable being out there alone in our circle. We want to overlap with somebody a little bit or maybe a couple people to find some commonality about what we do. It's no fun to be sitting at a table it's being the person that all I do is collect hires root beer. That that's tough. You know, it'd be a lonely I table. Actually, at a national, sat right next. I sat at this at the national with uh, at this get together thing, and I sat with some really interesting people, including the guy that uh, used to run Teletrade back in the nineties. You guys probably don't remember that, but that was one way of doing. On, uh, telephone auctions for cards. But anyway, he was very interesting. But the guy that sat next to me, all he collected was 1986 tops in PSA 10s. That's all he did. Nothing else. My conversation with him at the dinner was somewhat limited. Um, and I can't imagine being that collector because I want my circle to overlap. And I will be and, and it's done. YouTube has done that for me over the past several years is that um, I see what other people collect and I don't want to be a collector like them and I don't want it to be in my focus. But I'm like, you know what? I like basketball cards, too. I like my 72 Icy Bear or Maravich. And uh, so I'm going to what basketball cards do I like? Because I like basketball cards, too. And I'm actually thinking about getting a, I'm looking at a, a Kareem second or uh, uh, Alcindor second year card. Uh, the point being, I think we want to overlap with people. And sometimes that gets us to buy cards that we don't love as much because it, it just brings us more together as a community and a group. And there's more conversation. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to lump all of this part of this conversation into one category and we can go off on tangents within it. But it's keeping up with the Joneses. It's being inspired to buy something by something you see or someone you talk to. And it's impulse buying. All of that, you know, I think some of my decisions have factored all three of those to some degree. Most recently, I bought a few wacky packs, Tops wacky packs from the early 70s. And <clears throat> Dave, thank you for inspiring me to do that. Ironically, I do love them. I don't like, uh, and I, I love them mostly because they weren't that expensive, but, but <laughs> I think that uh, if they would have been, I mean, thinking something's cool and thinking something's cool enough to go buy it and thinking, and then loving it and all that. Look, I, and I, what I did, Dave, and I didn't tell this in my video, but I looked at hundreds of them, man. And I went and I went, you know, I really, I bought the ones that I really dug the graphics I dug the subject matter, all of that played into, I only wanted to, I was like, I just want a few. I just want a few examples in my collection. I don't need every one in the set or anything. And I wanted them to be PSA graded just because it's easy for me. I just, I don't know. I just wanted them that way. And uh, so I found a few that I just thought had really neat graphics. And But you inspired me. I would have never, ever thought to go buy those ever. Had I not seen your video on that, nor would I have even thought that I would enjoy it. And so it's this keeping up with the Joneses, impulse buying, and um, what else did I, I say? Being inspired. Up with the Joneses and impulse buying, a, a, something that probably triggered that was uh, the Michael Jordan docudrama that was put on. And uh, I think a lot of people went out and impulse by Jordans uh, at that time. And it's triggers like that will, I think, get you to co buy cards that perhaps once you get them. And I, I don't know how anybody would regret buying a Jordan card. But the point being, impulses like that, yeah, you end up getting things you're 
not so wild about. I, m my impulse buys tend to happen like at nationals. I, it, a couple of years ago in uh, uh, Cleveland, I was like shut out. I was on my third day, third or fourth day, and I, I really was shut out because I didn't find anything that I, I loved. So I, I did an impulse buy and uh, I showed this on this video, but what it is, and it is up my alley. It's a 1971 uh, uh, bazooka bubblegum complete box and it's got maize on it and catfish hunter. And uh, you know, it, it's a, I, you know, it's a cool piece, but, and it actually, it's, it's a cool piece and it kind of falls within my collection, but I don't love it. It was an impulse buy and I, it's one of these things that sometimes when I look at, it's these things, these things you don't love that you impulse buy or felt like you have to keep up the Joneses. Those are the first thing, if you're gonna sell things, those are the first things that are gonna go for sure. Yeah, do you, uh, this may be a touchy subject, but I just thought of this as you were showing it and thinking about making impulse buys. I think if you're on a limited, very limited card budget, you can't afford to do that as much. And I, and that's not a bad thing. It's just, you have to really stay focused or else you'll end up buying stuff you don't love and maybe, maybe not selling it for more or less than you made or bought it for. I think the more card budget you have, the more likely you are to make that purchase of something you don't love. If that makes sense. That makes Seems perfect cool. sense. And, uh, and it all depends on how disciplined you are. I've been I've been bidding in auctions, whether it's Heritage or Robert Edwards or even eBay, and you lose out on something and you have this panic that, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be buying something and here comes my impulse buy. I don't want to say that I'm so undisciplined that that happens all the time, but that is another scenario that I think your listeners will probably relate to is if you miss out on something, there is a perfect setup to have an impulse buy to something that you, next morning you're, you kind of say, did I really buy that? And uh, can be kind of disappointing. Yeah, and I think like one of the things that I've learned over the many years that I've collected is if I, you know, because we've all, like we say, we've all made impulse buys. So if I make an impulse buy and it's like, you know, a couple months down the road, I decide, yeah, I don't really want to go that direction or I don't really like this. I have no problem selling things that I don't love. Like, I, I mean, and that's maybe that's something that some people have a tough time doing. But if there's something that I have and I see something that I would rather have and I need to sell this to make that happen, I have no problem doing that. Yeah, Absolutely. you're really good. And, yeah. And we don't always love things that we used to love. True. Very true. You know, um, yeah. most, I would think that most collectors focus and interest evolve. Uh, and maybe it's due to maturity or maybe it's due to uh, the monetary availability to you. Maybe it's some influence in your life, whether it's a, a parent or a fellow YouTuber or, or a friend. So I, uh, my collecting interest is certainly evolved. So some things that I used to really, really love, um, I wouldn't say that I hate them or, or dislike them, but they're out of that big circle niche, or at least at the periphery of my circle and niche of things that I, I like. So there's really nothing wrong with a turn. How can you, you know, you're going to enjoy the hobby if you're involved in the hobby and involved in the hobby is either being involved as an observer of everybody else's collection and their enjoyment in it and, and their means of, of collecting, or you're going to be a, an, a participant. And most people are, are both, but to participate, unless you do have this money tree growing out in the backyard, there's got to be a degree of a constant turnover. And uh, between I love it. I don't love it so much. I dislike it. And other things, it's, it's this constant turnover thing. And I think that is actually what makes the collecting wheel 
turn along with many other things. I mean, people a lot of times don't really consider flippers is is a big is an important part of the hobby, but you know, perhaps perhaps they they are. You know, <clears throat> thinking about this subject, especially what Andy just said about being willing to sell stuff. And I think there are a lot of people listening to this that can relate to that. Yeah, man, if I don't love it anymore, I just sell it and I buy something else I love. I get that. Well, what if you're like me? And I genuinely think I might be kind of having some of those hoarding psychological issues. I have a hard time getting rid of stuff, even if I don't love it. I have a closet full of Josh Hamilton stuff that I would beg someone to give me the money that I would, that I paid for it for. And I, it's literally worth pennies on the dollar. And it's also the, God, I don't want to, it's, it's a pain in the butt. It's a lot of stuff. It's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of, and all of those might be excuses that I'm making in my own mind of why I don't get rid of it. I'm fully willing to admit that, but I have this kind of hoarder mentality that I don't want to get rid of stuff. And so for me, it's only about adding to not switching out. And so there's, I have a closet full of stuff. I don't love that. I did at some point love it. Um, but I've grown out. I've either grown beyond it, grown out of it, moved on to other circles, uh, which I think is a great analogy, Dave, in terms of defining our, we all have these circles and our circles can get bigger. Right. And, then they can start overlapping other people's circles. And it just makes the hobby a lot more fun, to be honest, if we have, like, I know, Dave, I want to ask you about this because these are things that I know at one point you probably didn't love, but you do now. And that's collecting George Brett stuff, modern stuff even, and Patrick Mahomes. Um, how did that evolve for you? Well, you know, in the early 70s, being from Kansas City, I was in on Brett early. I mean, he's kind of the hometown hero. He was the guy that was going to bring us out from being an expansion team, expansion team to a to a, a playoff team. So I was in on him early. So when I was in my late teenage years, there's certain cards that when I went to a show that I was definitely looking for, and that was George Brett rookies and um, Dale Murphy rookies. Um, uh, Jim Rice rookies, that type of stuff. So I was always a Brett, a Brett collector, but I didn't find that his cards were interesting to me, to be honest, after like 1978. And there's not a lot of interesting Brett cards before that. I mean, I don't care who, if you were a player in the 50s and 60s, they're uh, with some star quality whatsoever. There was beyond tops to find uh, very interesting cards of you. Like Mickey Mantle has a bazillion cards, and some of them are quite obscure and quite interesting. But Brett Resence, it wasn't, so I stopped collecting. But what got me, to answer your question, what got me into more modern stuff was just watching um, uh, fellow YouTubers. And I decided that, I could certainly go beyond uh, the Brett 75 tops rookie and set some cards around that area and enjoy them immensely. Um, albeit modern cards. So people started sending me cards and I put together binders of very common Brett cards and enjoy it immensely. And that kind of triggered me off into collecting well, I said, well, what, what am I going to do with Brett here? And I decided to do the Brett on card autos uh, collection, which I'm just taking my time with. I don't really show them. So I have certainly evolved with that. Patrick Mahomes is just because I have Kansas City Chief frustration, 50 years of frustration. And so in uh, 2018, I decided he's going to be the guy. And I announced it on YouTube in the summer of 2019 that I was all in stacking up on his cards and uh you know i'm just riding that train very mu much enjoy that that worked out for you yeah that has worked out and I, to be honest with you uh i it worked out so well that i felt almost a responsibility to sell a couple of them 
to take cash profit and and to uh, put that towards something else. I, I think actually I put it in some mutual fund for Kate, and, you know, not a lot of money, but I, I felt like Mahomes just completely expo- exploded that I felt like I, sh- I needed to take a little bit of, uh, of profit and be in on it essentially free. So we'll see. And another reason I, I sold off a little bit is because football, your, your next game could be the last game of your career. Unlike any, any know, sport right? where that rarely happens. Yeah. So the last thing I want us all to talk about. All right. So we all admit there are different reasons to buy cards you don't love. We acknowledge that we've all done it. Is it bad? Is it a bad thing to buy stuff you don't love? I mean, for me, it would be no, because I have no problem selling it, you know, now, if you're if you're the type of person that is is unwilling to sell, and what I like to do is like maybe once every couple of weeks, at least once a month, I'll take out my favorite cards and look at them, right? And if every time I look at a certain card and think, "Man, I wish I wouldn't have bought that," that means I need to get rid of it. Absolutely, <laughs> because yeah. what's the point of having it, right? If I don't want to look at it. Does anybody love the 1963 Pete Rose rookie? No, it's nobody loves that if they're speaking with honesty, but most everybody would love to own it. No, I love the 64 tops Pete Rose card. I I love the 64 tops, 65 tops, you know, but uh, I don't love the 63 tops. And uh, probably a lot of people would agree that it's not the greatest image and um if it was of any other player most likely they wouldn't have the card in their collection but it's pete rose one of the greatest players of all time it's not a great card it's not a great card to love but i think that it it certainly would be an integral part of of somebody's collection i mean anybody that had had a baseball card collection if you had a 63 if you have a 63 Pete Rose rookie and condition aside and people come over to show your cards, that would be one you would show them and, and be proud of it, even though you didn't love it. So there's reasons like that. Um, personally, I don't find the 68 Ryan rookie to be a card that I love. Uh, and, and I'm going to say it's not a card that I like. It's an important card and it's an important card in the hobby and it's a big card among uh, I would call them third generation collectors as first collectors as maniacs back in the forties and fifties. And then the people who got started in the sixties and seventies. And then the kind of the third generation who started collecting in the eighties and nineties. Uh, that's a very, that, that it's a big card for them. They, they watched this man's whole career. Um, but it's not a card that I love slash like, but I recognize it as being an, an important card and it's something that most people would be proud to have in their collection. And when I say cards like that, I'm not picking on that card because that's m- me. That's, the, that's a card that I don't really care for. But the point of this is, is your listeners will be able to write off their head. They're ticking off lots of cards that they own that they think is important card and important for their collection that they don't like. And that's just an example uh, but me. isn't that a, that's a huge distinction to make between importance of the card to the hobby and loving the card. It's you just hit the nail on the head. The Ryan, that's the whole great. point of this podcast, Mike, is yeah. we buy cards that we don't love and like, right? And, but it doesn't. And we can try it, to explain it away, but oftentimes uh, the reasons may be selfish or they may be ignorance, but we do it and. Uh, I think it's an important card and that's why I own the card despite, despite not really caring for it. But that, the point is, is that it doesn't take away or diminish from the importance of that card. I want the Rose rookie for my collection because a, I'm a rookie collector. Um, B it's in the 300 great cards by Mike Payne. 
you know, all of these reasons that we've just discussed and I won't love it. And I'm, and I'm, and I haven't bought it because I think it's stupidly priced for a card that ugly, you know, <laughs> and that's. Well, you're showing an incredible amount of rationale for a baseball card collector. Cause usually I, we mindlessly buy things that we have to have, uh, um, without showing as much restraint as that. Uh, but I bet you in the next couple of years, you'll own a Rose rookie. That and a, <laughs> a Whitey Ford rookie. And, a, you know, there's there's some key cards out there in that vintage era that I'm that I don't own that I've resisted buying because I, God, I can't. And it's more the money. It's going, I don't want to pay that for that card. I don't Here's like that card that much. Here is your 51 uh, Whitey Ford, 51 Bowman Whitey Ford rookie. It's mine. I have a complete 51 Bowman set. All, a lot of, it's that's high grade. And one of the lowest grades, the lowest grade is this five Whitey Ford. And the reason why I don't have a, a six or a seven in it is for the reason you stated. I, I, it's, it's, it's hard. To, I know I can sell this one and pay. The fact of the matter is, I got to have a grow. Something's really got to be happening wonderful in my life for me to go out and pay for a six for a PSA seven or seven and a half 51 Bowman Ford because I'm not, you know, not in love with the card. It's it's just a, it's just a card. It's an important card. He's a big part of the, that Yankee machine. But I can't do that either. So I'm sitting around with this set with this PSA five uh, Whitey Ford in this old flip. And I started looking at this. This is card is terrible. I mean, the, the, the holder's terrible. I don't know what's in it. The card is not a five. It doesn't, even, it wouldn't make a five today, but I don't want to pay for it either. Uh, so that, and that's really tough is to have to try to upgrade a card that you don't even like in the first place. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons why I at one point had thought about just going ahead in my my pride and joy uh, ultimate 49 Bowman set. I honestly thought about getting them all slabbed in PSA. But the only reason, well, besides that, it cost a hell of a lot of money. One of the reasons is, is I didn't want to get into 30 of them come back in a grade that's not satisfactory to me for that set. And here we go. Another two years trying to upgrade. I do not want to get into that upgrade craziness. Uh, and, and for on topic for cards that I don't love, you know, I, Lind, you know, Lindell will come back a PSA four or five, and I'll have to upgrade him. And um, so I don't want to get into that. Well, if you ever decide to get rid of that Whitey Ford, you might look me up. If I upgrade, sell you this one. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, I'll buy it from you. I'm looking at it. I'm like, boy, this is not a not an attractive card. But oh man, this is a. That would be fun to sell a card that you don't love to someone else that would not love it either. <laughs> right, for me to upgrade to a card that I don't love. Yes. Capitalism, I guess. That's, That's the trifecta of crazy, right? That's just like, oh man, but. Well, gosh, that was such an interesting topic. So many ways, rabbit holes. I hope you guys out there have really related maybe to what we've talked about, had similar stories. Um, I'm going to give these guys one last chance before we kind of sum up things. Dave, any last thoughts about stuff? About this topic? Uh, collect what you love. <laughs> I would invite fellow YouTubers to restrain for two weeks from ending your video with collect what you love because we are all trying to collect what we love and what we like. And the point of this podcast was sometimes we're collecting things we don't love. And uh, so and if you if if you incorporate all of that into what we do, we're just out there collecting cards. You know, love them, hate them, indifferent. We're collecting them and we're trading them. And uh, I think the hobby is strong. It is indeed. Andy? I think my final words would be attempt to collect what you love. And when you fail, sell them. <laughs> <laughs> Wise advice. Um, 
Dave, man, I hope you'll come back and uh, do another episode where we can talk about what I really know you have a huge love and passion for, which is the food and beverage issues. Would you be willing to do that? We'd do that, but it'd have to be a two-parter. It would be. Yeah, because it would be, we'd do it long because I'm terribly long-winded and then you'd have to do some serious editing. So <laughs> that would be probably just fine with Andy and myself. That sounds great. Uh, I, I would love, I just think you do a great job not only just showing the cards, but teaching people about the cards and where they come from. So if you do not follow Blue Jacket 66 and on YouTube, you can go there and learn a ton about this hobby, about mantles, about so much stuff. I, don't, I can't even lit, rattle it off here. It would be doing it a disservice. So uh, Dave, thanks for your contribution to the oh. hobby. Thanks, oh, thanks for your friendship. Andy, thank you very much. Boys, thanks a lot, Dave. Soon. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And uh, thanks, everybody. You know, go check us out. We're on all the major uh, podcast places except for Google Podcasts for some reason. We're not on Google Podcasts. But everywhere else we are around and would love you guys to subscribe and give us feedback wherever you can. Thank you so much, everybody, for watching, listening, wherever you are out there. Have a great week, great night, and keep collecting.